Well, that was quite an interesting leap from juggling to the authority of Christ. Uh, I had no idea how he was getting there, but he did. <laughs> yeah, we, are, we are truly gifted with uh, people in this church who, who love their ministry, and uh, Mr. Gummy is especially, uh, especially one of them. Good morning, church. <clears throat> I am preaching this for the fourth time. That's really a record, because um, we have a Thursday evening service as well. So keep that in mind. Maybe you'd want to come to Thursday evening service sometime. It's, uh, it's the same service. The atmosphere is a little different. Jesus teaches with authority and drives out a demonic spirit. Our text is Mark 1, 21 to 28. Hear the word of the Lord. They went to Capernaum. They means Jesus and his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. There ends our scripture reading. Praise be to God. Mark's gospel focuses on Jesus as a man of action and a man of authority. The conflict between Jesus and Satan illustrates this point clearly. As we have heard this series on Mark, um, which we're in now, um, in it we encounter from the get-go a teacher who presents a forceful challenge to his hearers. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and therefore believe. In Mark, there is no manger scene with baby Jesus, no angelic choir, no star, no wise men from the east, or shepherds uh, watching their flocks by night. Mark has no romantic material for Christmas cards or ornaments. We simply encounter an adult man from Nazareth, who is baptized so as to begin his public ministry 
and then is driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to do battle with the tempter. He rebukes the devil and emerges after 40 days of fasting, triumphant over the evil one. The gloves are off, the die has been cast, and a momentous struggle ensues. By the end of the first chapter of Mark, we see a bold and manly Jesus, a young carpenter who speaks with power in the synagogue of Capernaum, drives out a demon spirit who confronts him, and then performs several supernatural healings, casts out a number of evil spirits. His ministry is startling. Full of dynamism and authority, he leaves people dumbfounded and his fame spreads rapidly across the land. Here was a rabbi with a difference, a strong young man who speaks decisively, who battles and defeats evil and destroys the works of the devil. Now, I have been a teacher for a few decades, and I know teachers, they say, well, on the one hand, this and these three reasons, but on the other hand, and you never really know where they land up. I've probably said things like that myself, but Jesus is different. He's decisive, he knows where he's going. He is driven by the truth. If you're interested in the truth, you should really consider going to Ravi Zacharias's meetings because he builds what he teaches on a Christian worldview that is getting more and more important for us at this time. Let us turn now in more detail to the narrative of Capernaum. Jesus and his disciples visit a nearby synagogue where Jesus begins teaching. People are amazed by the authority with which he speaks. Suddenly he is challenged by a man who is possessed by an impure spirit. Are you surprised? to find a demoniac in a Jewish worship service? Perhaps demons come to Christian churches as well. How about Eastminster? Are you sure about the people sitting next to you? The devil can come to church. In the four Gospels and Acts, we find over 70 references to the demonic spirits and the devil and his angels. Most of the references are to cases where people have been strongly demonized, what we used to call demon-possessed. And then Jesus exhibits his mastery over the demons by expelling them or driving them out. I believe it's really relevant doctrinally 
that this first exorcism follows close on the triumph of Jesus over Satan, the head of the, of the demons in the wilderness. Because the demonic realm set up and took notice when Jesus triumphed over Satan, the head of the demons. And now when Jesus starts teaching, he's interrupted immediately by a demon spirit. God's Son is proclaiming the Lord's rule over a world fallen under the sway of Satan. 1 John 5 verse 19 reads, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's pretty serious. The devil is called the prince of this world in the Gospel of John three times. In 2 Corinthians he is called the God of this age and the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians. These titles speak to the authority that he has assumed here on earth. This usurping of the Lord's rule and reign is exactly why Jesus came to earth. If I asked you why Jesus came to earth, I'm sure you would probably say, to save us from sin, um, to live as an example for us, uh, to show the love of God. And all these answers are right. But here there is a text that says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The demoniac is described as a man who has an impure spirit. There's a deliberate contrast between Jesus and the demoniac. The demoniac, however, describes Jesus with astonishing accuracy. He says he's the Holy One of God. If you're ever in a situation where you have a demon spirit talk to you, I want to tell you, don't believe what they say. They're liars. But this one got it right. He said, Jesus is the Holy One of God. We could say Jesus is the one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells rather than the unholy or impure spirit. Let us look now at the cries of the demoniac in the hushed synagogue. First, he yells out a question. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This acknowledges that there is a conflict brewing between the demonic realm and this rabbi. Note the use of the plural, us. In this case, it's mostly a reference, most likely a reference to the demons as a group or a class. 
rather than a plurality of demons indwelling the man as we will later encounter in the episode of Legion and the pigs and the other Gadarene demoniac. It seems clear that the demon himself is speaking rather than the man. In his very helpful book, Defeating Dark Angels, Dr. Charles Craft of Fuller explains that it is useful to view demonization on a sliding scale. From weak, where they have some control, but very little, to medium, where they can cause unrestrained fear or anger in people, to strong, where the human behavior patterns become compulsive. And then the last stage is when they take over the human so, complete, so completely that they can speak through the person's voice. This is the deepest form of demonization, and it is usually the result of people dabbling in occult practices and witchcraft. Here in Mark 1, we have a strong case of demon infestation, where the evil indwelling spirit overrides the personality of the person and can control what the person says. Second, the demon asks, have you come to destroy us? The question shows that there was a general awareness among demons that the mission of Jesus included the destruction of their kingdom. What was being asked was being asked in fear whether the final overthrow and punishment was imminent. The demon seems to acknowledge, by the way, the complete supremacy of Jesus. He's not considering the possibility that the demon forces could prevail. This is underlined by the third thing that the demon says. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon recognizes who Jesus is, the one from God who is holy and who will vanquish them. Next, Jesus speaks and issues a command. He rebukes the unclean spirit, silences him, ordering the demon to depart from the man. Now, there are exorcisms in extra-biblical accounts. Often we read of a lot of paraphernalia that is used to get rid of the demons special incantations and rites, magic formulas. Here in Jesus' approach, we have no pig's fat, holy water, special plants, or relics. A spoken word is enough. The demon shakes the man violently, causing him to convulse and shriek as he leaves. The onlookers are astounded. They recognize a startlingly new authority. No time is wasted. A simple command is sufficient. In the man from Nazareth, the demons have met their match. As we read the first ten chapters of Mark, we see demons on practically every page. Exorcisms and miraculous healings 
play a major role in the ministry of Jesus, sometimes we just read over it. They're not exceptional, they're frequent. At the close of this day, we read a summary statement. After sunset, people suffering from many ailments were brought to Jesus and he healed them. He has compassion over them. And he also drove out many demons. A typical day's work. Mark 1.39 reads, So Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. What do you think of all this talk about demons and unclean spirits? Does it strike you as a little odd? A word from far off place, a far off time. In our late modern or secular era, we like to trivialize or domesticate demonology. The demon is portrayed in cartoons with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, something to joke about. I recall well when I was an associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Tulsa that a lady stopped me in the middle of a Sunday school class and said, but, but surely you don't mean to imply that the devil is real? I know he sort of represents or personifies evil, but he doesn't really exist as a personal being, does he? I mean, isn't he just an element of folklore, uh, like the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy? Obviously, we did not agree on this point. C.S. Lewis wrote a fictional account of an older demon writing to a young protege known as Wormwood in his work, Screwtape Letters. In it, he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which human beings can fall about demons. One is to deny their existence. The other is to believe they exist and then to become obsessed or fascinated with them, finding them everywhere. Lewis says the devil is equally delighted with either of these two reactions. He can work with people who think he doesn't exist. That gives him a free hand. He can work with people who are fascinated with the supernatural and lead them astray and get them further and further off track. I wonder which error you would be closest to. The worldview of the New Testament definitely includes an unseen dimension of reality. We find this in the Gospels, in Paul's letters, and also in the early creeds of the Church. 
which speak of God as the creator of all things seen and unseen. Ephesians 6 verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood, these are things seen. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These are things unseen. Actually, when we come to think of it, if we deny the supernatural realm, we don't only eliminate angels and demons and miracles, we even discount the existence of God himself who is invisible and that would make us materialists. 1 John 3.8 makes the remarkable claim that Christ appeared with a specific purpose to destroy the works of the devil. If this is why he came, we probably need to take the unseen dimension more seriously and wear the weapons, the armor of God, of warfare. We have prayed and sung about them, the breastplate, the helmet, and so forth. People tell you, especially when you're in Sunday school, put on the armor and you put on every little piece. I say, never take the armor off because the armor really represents character. It's righteousness, it's truth, it's peace. These are character attributes, most of them. And you don't want to lose your character when you're in bed, so keep them on. That, that's my advice. But things beyond our rational grasp and control make us modern people uncomfortable. This has led to several attempts throughout church history for people to distance themselves as believers from these more scary and more supernatural aspects that we read about in the Bible. This view is called cessationism claiming that the age of miracles has ceased. Usually they limit the time of the supernatural and the supernatural occurrences to the time of the first 12 apostles. Or if they see they really can't limit them that much, they say, oh, it all happened in the first three centuries of church history when, when the church was still in its infancy and needed some extra help. It was Augustine, Augustine, if you prefer, the famous theologian of the 4th and 5th centuries who claimed that the special gifts of the Spirit had died out by his time. And his statement about that has been quoted through the centuries by cessationists. Later, 
however, the very same Augustine retracted this view in his last book, The City of God. Because you see, the Lord started healing people miraculously in his congregation in Hippo, North Africa. And he started counting. And he got over 70 healings in his own church. <laughs> and he was no longer able to deny the continuing supernatural work of the Spirit. Curiously enough, though, the cessationists never quoted that part about the retraction. Until the 20th century, people didn't even notice it. The reformed leader, John Calvin, is ambiguous on this point. He quotes Augustine about miracles, ending, but then when he dedicates his Institutes of Christian Religion, his major book, to the King of France, Francis I, he says, and your majesty, among the French Huguenots or Protestants, there are many examples of supernatural healing. And unlike those amongst the Catholics, which are based on superstition and supposed relics of the bones of saints, these Protestant healings are genuine. That was Calvin. But I guess I can't take you through all of church history. Let's bring you to the 20th century. In the 1960s and 70s, there's were, there was a revival called the Charismatic Revival in the Catholic Church and in many Protestant churches in the US. And then it spread across the globe. And many people recognized that the age of miracles and the gifts of the Spirit had not passed away. And angels and demons are real. On the other hand, in more liberal circles, there were theologians who tried to explain away even the miracles of Jesus. My favorite illustration comes from William Barclay. When writing about Jesus walking on the water, which is a tall order, of course, he says, perhaps there were some stepping stones just under the surface of the water. And Jesus, of course, knew about them. Perhaps there was a sandbar. And when Peter started sinking, well, it's because he stepped off the stepping stones. So Jesus grabbed him and put him back on the right track. What do you think of that? Ingenious, but total fiction. No geographic or historical evidence to back it up. Others say, to try and get some distance from the uncomfortableness of supernatural occurrences. Well, yes, maybe the miracles happen amongst the primitive 
less developed people like in Africa or India, but not in our Western world. Well, there are indeed amazing miracles taking place in India today. A friend of mine from university who now works there told me of numerous people in his congregation that were raised from the dead in North Africa, uh, in North India, where the Christian church is being persecuted. But actually, we also hear of the miraculous, as well as the demonic and the occult practices taking place in American cities. Would it surprise you if I told you that I have been called out pastorally in recent years to deal with possible cases of demonic oppression four or five times in our own Eastminster congregation. We don't talk about this much, but the calls usually come late at night and we respond to them. I don't want anybody to become fearful Remember the devil is a liar and a deceiver and much of his power depends on trying to deceive us and to delude us and to pretend that he has power. Often people suspect they are faced with demons and that's not really the case. But other times it is. We have to distinguish between the battle against the flesh and the battle against demonization. You have to use different methods for them. If someone is seriously battling with the issue of lust, say a young man, it will not help for him to come to Pastor Stan and say, oh, please drive out this demon of lust from me and best do it right now. And then it'll be over. That will not work. I can assure you of that. I once tried it. That's a matter of what we call the flesh. Fleshly desires of our heart need to be crucified, not exorcised. In this case, there is need of much self-control, prayer, discipline, resisting, taking thoughts captive, pulling down strongholds. Read 2 Corinthians 10. But sadly, there are situations where we're not just dealing with the flesh, which will be always with us and which we must always resist. But there are situations where the evil one gains a foothold in our lives. And we need help for that to be broken. It's important while we think about this to remember that the devil is a defeated foe. Christ triumphed over death, 
Satan and evil, with his crucifixion and his glorious resurrection. We anticipate the ultimate victory when Christ will make all things new in the new Jerusalem and cast the devil and his angels into hell. The power that the evil one still currently possesses has been likened to the situation close to the end of Second World War, when after D-Day it was clear that the Allied forces would be victorious. But it took another 11 months before peace was declared. During this interim period, the war was still real and dangerous. But you know, the whole tenor and mood of the Allied soldiers was different. The battle had changed. It was only a matter of time before the Nazis would be defeated. It wasn't, well, perhaps they'll take over the world. We should look at the continuing fight against the demonic in this way, knowing that the victory is ours in Christ Jesus. I draw to a close. I want to give you some practical advice for dealing with the works of the evil one. Simply put, take out the garbage so that the rats won't come. I mean, we need to repent and confess our sins to the Lord and receive forgiveness regularly. That is why we have a prayer of confession added into our prayers every Sunday. When we do this with sincerity, the demonic can never gain a foothold in our lives. Martin Luther was very aware of the devil in his personal struggles. When I visited the castle where he did the translation into German, uh, and we read stories of the devil trying to confuse him and tempt him, and the, uh, the story, probably apocryphal, goes, that he got so sick of the devil that he threw an ink pot at him and they showed us the stain on the wall. I think they have to replenish it every 10 years, but it's really good for tourism. Um, Martin Luther hammered up 95 theses against the wall. Everybody knows that. But nobody seems to know what the first thesis was. I give it to you in a paraphrase. The first thesis of the 95 Theses is, the secret of a Christian's walk is living in ongoing repentance. Eine stete Busa, a continuing repentance. But when we don't live in continuing repentance, when we develop repeated sinful patterns of abuse, addiction, 
live with hatred, sometimes against a family member, bitter resentment, unforgiveness and fear for long periods in our life. This garbage of sin can push us into a downward spiral that as it were attracts worms and flies and before we know it the rats appear. The evil one latches on to our wounded emotions and gains a foothold in our lives. We become vulnerable to attacks from demonic sources. But be of good cheer, good courage. Jesus is our refuge. He is the one who is stronger. He has defeated the evil one. In him, even death has lost its sting. Death has been transformed into the portal of everlasting life. Do not fear death. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Be quiet. Get out of him. And he left instantly. Jesus is the one who teaches us with authority and drives out demonic spirits even today. May his name be praised. Hallelujah. Amen. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we ask that your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, would guide us into all truth. We pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, that we would clear up what needs to be cleared up, and that we would continually be repenting and confessing so that we can walk in victory. I pray, Lord, for anyone that is battling in this area, that they would seek help, that they would pray with a friend or pray with a pastor or an elder. And I pray, Lord, that you would give our church victory over the evil one, that we would walk in the light, following Jesus, the light of this world. Lord, we take refuge in your power and authority. You grant us victory through your cross and resurrection. Let that call forth from our hearts gratitude. We come now to dedicate this offering to your work of mercy, peace, and justice throughout our church, our city, and the world. To your glory. Amen. <clears throat>